Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Friday, August 9th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Warren's path to the nomination, how the economy is doing in swing states, what Biden and Bullock ate on sticks at the Iowa State Fair yesterday, the Biden gaffe heard around the world, an update on that rumored Hickenlooper Senate run, and Yang releases a playlist of his favorite jams. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. Today in New York Magazine, Ed Kilgore wrote a piece with the headline, quote, Surging in polls, Elizabeth Warren now has a path to the nomination, end quote. As I mentioned earlier this week, Warren continues to rise in national polls and is now firmly in competition for the number two spot right behind Biden. In many polls, she's already there, having displaced Senator Bernie Sanders, but in others, their positions are reversed or they are essentially tied. In the Real Clear Politics polling average, which attempts to take a bunch of polls and average them together, Warren and Sanders are statistically tied at just over 15%, behind Biden at 31%. Now, yes, both of them are way behind Biden nationally, but Warren has steadily improved her position for several months now. Not only is Warren doing very well in national polls, she is doing super well in specific early states, notably Iowa, where a recent Monmouth poll put her firmly in second place, just 9% behind Biden. In other early voting states like New Hampshire and Nevada, she's just behind Sanders. She has a very large organization on the ground, especially in Iowa, and apparently is gearing up a similar effort in Nevada. Now, Kilgore's article lays out a detailed path that involves those early states plus New Hampshire that could cement her standing as the key rival to Biden. You're going to have to read the article for all the math and the little side trips along the way, but it's interesting where it ends up. Reading from New York Magazine, quote, This scenario helps explain why Warren has been so careful to avoid any friction with Sanders. She's in a good, if hardly unassailable, position to squeeze Bernie out of the race by the beginning of March if Bernie or Bust voters don't talk him into staying the course at Warren's expense. If she can win that implicit progressive subprimary and Harris continues to flounder, she could be in a one-on-one competition with Joe Biden earlier than anyone might have imagined. And that could produce her best shot at the nomination. End quote. Now, this all gets back to the idea that Warren and Sanders are essentially sharing a similar ideology, and thus we presume the same voter pool. Reading once more from the article on the topic of electability, quote, Warren has made recent progress in both objective, head-to-head polls versus Trump, and subjective, the all-important perception that she could beat Trump, measurements of electability, which often improve as a candidate does well in the primaries. If she gets that one-on-one competition with Biden, the question may be whether Democratic voters want her to be president enough to take a bit of a risk. Warren probably has a plan to make that happen. End quote. Earlier this week in Fortune, Bob Sellers wrote an article with a simple and very useful premise, quote, Here's how the economy has performed in every swing state since Trump was elected. End quote. This is a useful time to recall political strategist James Carville and his comment on the economy that helped Bill Clinton win the presidency in 1992. Carville hung a sign in Clinton campaign HQ that had three points. Quote, one, change versus more of the same. Two, the economy, stupid. And three, don't forget health care. End quote. 
That second one about the economy has become particularly famous. The idea there is that if voters perceive a good economy, they may ascribe it to the current president. And the same may hold true for bad economies. So here we are nearly 30 years later churning through the same message and wondering whether it is actually influencing voters. In the fortune analysis, Sellers looks at growth in gross domestic product, or GDP, within a handful of states. Now, he admits that picking swing states is kind of arbitrary, so his selection might not quite match reality, but it's pretty close. He chose to analyze Arizona, Maine, Michigan, New Hampshire, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. In those states, he looked at how GDP grew back in 2016 compared to specific periods both in 2018 and 2019. Now, let's be clear, the economy has been growing in all of those years, so the difference there is how much it's growing. And keep in mind, we haven't seen a substantial recession within the past four years. Okay, so what did he find? Well, in every state he examined except Arizona, economic growth slowed between the third quarter of 2016 and the first quarter of 2019, which is the latest data he has available. The differences are fairly modest, though one that jumps out is Michigan growing at a rate 2.4% slower than it was under Obama, and Maine growing 2.2% slower. The other states are around 1% or less in terms of their decline, except for Arizona, which is now growing 1% faster than it did under Obama. Then, Sellers ran a similar analysis, but he used Q3 2016 and Q4 2018. Now, the reasoning behind this has to do with national GDP and math, and I don't want you to turn the podcast off because of the math, so I'm just going to get to the summary. Basically, comparing those periods, the swing states are much worse off, except Arizona, which only grew 0.7%. The big outlier then becomes Maine, which has a net loss in growth of 4.1%. You also start to see some interesting stuff, like Ohio and Michigan both losing 2.4% in growth each. Sellers also looked at unemployment in those same states, and surprise, that picture has gotten better since the Obama administration, as has personal income growth. So go read the story for the details, but the gist of it is there is a very mixed picture here of what is happening economically within these swing states. Some of it's good, some of it's bad, but what will really matter is what those voters feel about the economy. We'll have to wait for a lot more polling to determine that. Every year, the Iowa State Fair draws about a million people to its many, many, many attractions, including the famous Butter Cow. That is a giant cow sculpted from butter. And this year, there is a companion sculpture, which is a butter cookie monster watching a butter TV while eating a butter cookie. In addition to the butter, people come for the many, many fried things on sticks. But every four years, you can add a little political sideshow to all that. Candidates show up, they eat weird fried stuff, some take a turn handling the grill, and they all give speeches. There's also a corn pole in which you drop a kernel of corn into a jar with your preferred candidate's name on it. This year, there are many, many more jars than usual. Then there's the soapbox, where candidates get up and give their speeches, often mentioning their vague, distant ties to Iowa and making their case to local voters. Yesterday on the soapbox, Montana Governor Steve Bullock likened the Iowa caucuses to the sorting hat in the Harry Potter books, but he did not identify which house he would like to be sorted into. Instead, he suggested he just wanted to be among the top three. So this raises many questions, but sadly, this is no longer a Harry Potter fan podcast, so we have to move on. 
Yeah, so that's not what we're here for today. Today, it's about food on a stick. Both Joe Biden and Steve Bullock stopped by the fair on Thursday and managed to find some stuff on sticks they enjoyed. I am going to read to you a few of the options on the menu just so you get a sense of what they're up against. According to the Gazette, this year's new foods include something called a corn stalker cocktail, funnel cake flavored beer, boozy apple pecan caramel, and I'm not even sure which noun in there is the main one, but anyway, next is an apple cider shakeup, and finally something called the chief. Now the less said about that last one, the better. But let's not forget classics like ice cream on a stick, egg on a stick, pork chop on a stick, and of course, the corn dog, which, at least where I'm from, intrinsically includes a stick. For the record, Biden cited ice cream on a stick as his favorite, while Bullock said that pork on a stick was his preference. Both of them managed to tweet photos as evidence, but later, Bullock tweeted a video contradicting his earlier tweet and suggested instead that deep-fried Oreos were in fact his favorite. Now, as of the press time, it is still unclear to me whether those Oreos have been eaten from a stick or not, and I will keep you posted as this story develops. The Election Ride Home is brought to you by My Wall Street. Now look, when I started investing, there was a world of options open to me, and that was the problem. There are a zillion stocks you can buy, but it's really hard to know which of them are any good. I read a whole book on investing, and I thought I had it locked in. And I managed to pick five stocks, all of which totally tanked, and left me wondering why investing had to be so hard. Well, the broker I used was there to help me buy stocks, but they weren't there to tell me which stocks might be a good idea or why. And that's where My Wall Street comes in. They are not a broker, so you can trust them to make unbiased recommendations. They are experienced investors who do the legwork for you. They research the stocks, give you a short list of the best ones, then you can pick which of those you might want to buy. My Wall Street helps you enter the world of investing with a trustworthy partner at your side. And best of all, Election Ride Home listeners can access the entire My Wall Street app for free and use it for 30 days instead of the normal 7 days. After a full month, you can stick with their expert guidance for just $9.99 a month. So visit MyWallStreet.com slash ride to download the app now and get access to their market-beating stock picks and expert guidance. That's MyWallStreet, spelled MyWallST.com slash ride. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Next up, the Biden thing. Now, as I just mentioned, Biden spent his day campaigning in Iowa. He spoke at the Iowa State Fair, he ate things on sticks, and in the evening, he gave a speech as well. At that evening speech, a 14-second clip from his remarks caused an uproar online. Brace yourself, here it comes. We have this notion that somehow if you're poor, you cannot do it. Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids, wealthy kids, black kids, Asian kids. No, I really mean it, but think how we think about it. Yeah, here we have Joe Biden saying white when he apparently meant wealthy. 
Or a less charitable interpretation of that is that Biden really did mean white and slipped up and just let that out. It takes him a moment to notice that he has made this truly awful statement, but you can actually hear people clapping before he corrects himself. He was speaking in front of the Asian and Latino Coalition PAC in Des Moines. The clip was immediately picked up and disseminated last night by Trump's rapid response director on Twitter. And Twitter rapidly responded. Now, I won't read you all the tweets. You can go find those yourself if you want. Just search for the word Biden today and you will get an earful. Now, is this remark offensive? Yes. Is it wrong? Oh, yes. But did Biden misspeak? Well, probably, maybe. I'm inclined to think so because he has made similar statements about opportunity for kids before, minus the whiteness thing. There's a link in the show notes to one example, and there are more if you go looking for them. But even if he did misspeak, a lot of people feel that that is equally disqualifying, that Biden's mental and verbal acuity are not up to the task of being president right now. So here we are. This is genuinely a mess, and we're caught within kind of a roiling stew right now. I don't blame voters for looking at that statement and seeing totally different things. Mike Memoli, a reporter who was in the room and is following Biden around the country, said on MSNBC that most people there didn't seem to register what had been said, which accounts for the applause. But as I scan the reactions to this Biden thing online right now, they fall into three broad categories. One, he's a racist. Two, he's too old to be president and this is the key evidence we needed. Or three, the guy misspoke, cut him a break. Now, which of these you prefer, that's up to you. In trying to offer you context for this news, I am reminded of part of the speech from Senator Cory Booker that I played on yesterday's show. Let me play you a brief clip of that here. Listen in. Because of the answer to the question, do racism and white supremacy exist, is yes. Then the real question isn't who is or isn't a racist but who is and isn't doing something about it. I think it's clear from Biden's recent statements and actions that he is concerned with racial justice, but that doesn't erase what he said. And I should also mention that Booker went after Biden in the most recent debate because of the lingering effects of Biden's crime policies back in the 90s on Booker's community and people of color specifically. I do think one thing is clear here, though. The Trump team is trying to draw a false equivalence between this statement by Biden and Trump's consistent and recent history of racist rhetoric and politics. So the issue here is not so much, you know, is Biden equivalent to Trump? The issue is whether this statement is, for you as a voter, disqualifying. I am genuinely curious to see what next week's polls might have to say about that. On Wednesday, I reported that former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper is keeping his options open about possibly, maybe probably, running for Senate in his home state, rather than sticking with his presidential bid. Well, in a new article for Politico, James Arkin argues that Hickenlooper might be too late for that Senate run as well. Reading from that article, quote, Nearly a dozen Democrats are running in Colorado, which is seen as the party's best opportunity to flip a GOP-held seat. And there is a top tier of roughly five candidates. They've spent months courting supporters and raising money, and few would immediately step aside for Hickenlooper, according to conversations with several candidates, aides, and a half-dozen Democratic operatives in the state. End quote. 
The article goes on to describe in detail the many, many campaigns that are competing in a major primary for that Democratic Senate run. And it sounds like several of them are close to Hickenlooper in terms of fundraising, even though Hickenlooper has been operating at the national level. So if he does turn around and head back to Colorado, he would face a smaller field than he does now, and probably thus have better odds, but it wouldn't be a runaway success. Part of that problem really is money, and Hickenlooper's fundraising has only been so-so in the national context. Reading once more from the article, quote, If he were to enter the Senate race, according to multiple Democrats, the initial fundraising quarters would be a key test for whether he would be able to run ahead of the rest of the field. Democrats in the state expect other candidates to push in the third and fourth quarter of this year to increase their fundraising to keep pace with the former governor. If he significantly outraises the field through the end of the year, it could change the dynamics quickly in his favor. End quote. And last up this week, some more news in a mellow mood. Earlier this week, Andrew Yang released a Spotify playlist of what he calls his favorite jams. He did that to celebrate a Q3 fundraising goal. While this is not news that needs a ton of analysis, I did go through the list to figure out which artists got the most representation. In what is a genuine surprise to me, Yang appears to share some musical interests both with me and others at the Ride Home Network. With four songs each, The Smiths and Florence and the Machine are on top. Next up, with three songs, is The Cure, including Friday I'm in Love, which is a good Cure song, and Boys Don't Cry, which is a great Cure song. Nobody else came close, though I do want to mention that we have tracks in there by Prince, Maxwell, Drake, Tupac, and two songs by U2, but I don't count one of them because it is a club remix, and it's a club remix of a not particularly good U2 song anyway. So all I'm saying here is if Yang ever puts five bucks in the jukebox, I'm going to listen. Well, that is it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. All right, so welcome to all of you coming from This American Life. This is the show that I do now. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, today, This American Life aired a rerun of a true story I reported for them back in 2010. There's a link at the top of the show notes so you can go check that out if you like. Oh, and by the way, there is now a movie inspired by that piece of reporting. It's called Ode to Joy, and it opens today in theaters in L.A. and New York City, plus on iTunes. It's a rom-com with some amazing actors in it, and if you've got either iTunes or a certain zip code, you can go check that out today. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all on Monday. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.
Dot com.